So glad you're here this morning. What a blessing to be in the house of God. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in those worship songs. I don't know why this morning it just felt it awesome. It felt different. Uh, we added a few more instruments, and it was, uh, it was awesome. And uh, thank you for, for singing so well, leading us that way. And, and thank you as attenders for participating so well. You know, one of the things I love about the time of worship at our church is that um, we really believe in corporate worship. We, we believe that every one of us should be singing. It's not just a, uh, a concert of the, uh, of the worship team up here, but rather they're helping us lead and leading us in worshiping together. And, uh, and as we sing together, uh, I hope your heart is, is as moved uh, when you're singing as it is when you're hearing. And, um, and I, I just I feel so blessed this morning uh, by the music, and I hope you were as well. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter number 1, we're going to be continue our series on hope, a living hope. And we're studying this book from chapter 1, verse 1, going through every verse. And we're looking at this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote uh, to Christians in his day, but uh, not only for the Christians that were living in his day, but really through all those succeeding generations uh, to give them the hope that they need as they go through their life. I think if you've lived on this earth long enough, you found that a living life without hope is not a happy life. It's not a joyful life. Living in this world day after day without any hope really brings depression. It can bring discouragement, uh, and it can bring you to a point where uh, you don't want to continue waking up day after day. You don't want to continue uh, to live your life. But Hope changes all of that. And so Peter was writing to the Christians of his day that were being persecuted uh, by uh, the emperor um, Nero and other emperors of Rome. And they were not only being persecuted, but they were going through uh, suffering. They were going through uh, difficulties and trials. And he writes to them of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, we've learned by just reading through the letter what that hope is. And if you're taking notes this morning, we, we've been putting it up at the, at the top of our notes. By the way, if you do need notes and you've not received them, you can uh, raise your hand and Brother Moses will get them to you. Uh, but on the top of your notes, we've been putting our definition of what we see hope is according to verse number three down to verse number five. And that is the future glory of a life that is eternal and full of unrestrained joy with God. That is the hope that we have, a future glory. It's not based and founded here on earth, but it's based on a different life. In fact, the life after this life, a life where there is no pain and suffering, a life where there is no longer any death. The, the hope that we have is a better future, a new future, a glorious future. And when you think about that future, that's what can get you through the most darkest of days. It's what can get a parent that loses a son or a daughter in life before losing their own life. It gets them through that time, the hope. It gets children uh, through a time of losing a parent. In fact, this week we just had a funeral for one of our um, members' fathers and uh, Cecilia was just sharing uh, about how the promises of God have been comforting her. She says, I, I don't know. We were, we were uh, there on, um, 
on Wednesday, and she was sharing a few words about her dad's life, and, and she said, you know, Jeremy, normally I just break down and cry, and you can't understand any words that are coming out of my mouth. It's just the, the emotion usually overtakes me because I'm, I'm very emotional. And uh, she says, but I, I just, I feel different right now. I, I don't know, but I just feel a peace of God that, that I can do this. And, uh, and she did a great job just sharing what her dad meant to her and, and what he did for her in her life. And, and uh, she says, you know, I, I, I'm still sorrowing, right? I'm still crying for his separation. But, but she says, there's something there that, that is sustaining me right now. And that is the peace of God. It's the comfort of God. It's the hope of God. And that's what Peter is writing about. Uh, we learn that when hope is applied, we can be joyful even in trials. When we apply hope in our life, we can learn to love God more and more each day. When we have hope applied into our life, we can identify with the sufferings of Christ. But hope also calls us to action. Uh, we learned uh, that hope calls us to live life differently. In fact, in verse 15 and 16, uh, Peter says specifically that God commands, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We are to live differently, set apart lives. And, and, and our, our, we ought to live with our mindset being different. He, he talked about this, about having our minds prepared and, and, uh, and ready uh, to, to receive this hope, to, to be and have that hope. Then we learn that hope causes us to think about seeing our judge soon. You see, even though we have the hope of a bright future, we also have that hope entails, I should say, us giving an account for the hope that was given to us, for the life that was given to us. Now, where an unbeliever is going to stand before God to be condemned, believers will stand before God to give an account. And God says, and Peter reminds the Christians there that he doesn't have uh, respect of persons. He doesn't play favoritism. He doesn't give you an excuse for why you didn't live differently than the world with the life that he gave you, with the hope that he gave you. And we learn about that in verse uh, 17 and verse 18 of chapter 1. And then verse 19 and 20 and 21, we learn about the price of that hope. Peter wants to remind them, yeah, God is asking you to live differently. Yes, uh, God is, is, is commanding us to be different and to prepare our minds. And he's reminding you that there is an account to be made to him. But just remember that that hope is something precious. And that's why we live as pilgrims in this world, as sojourners, as he says in the King James Version, just, just strangers in a strange world moving through it. Not looking for a hope that is here, but a hope that is later. When you get to verse number 22, as we're going to study this morning, we'll see that hope leaves evidences in our life of being real. If you have hope and the hope of Christ, the hope of salvation in your life, it will leave evidences in your life that others can see of the hope that is within you. In fact, notice what he writes. Verse 22, we're going to read all the way down to verse number 3 of chapter 2. But in verse 22, he says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, 
See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be... Ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Peter jumps into the evidences of this hope. You know, whenever I think about evidence, I think about the the greatest detective that never existed, right? Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. I don't know how many have maybe seen the movies or seen even the older movies, read the books, but Sherlock Holmes is an amazing detective. If If you've read or watched you know that he's always taking these impossible cases, right? These, these cases that seem like they're mysteries that can never really be told and, and found out what the truth is. And just by observation, by science, and by looking at all these clues and evidences, Sherlock's always able to piece the puzzle together. And at the end of the book, you solve the mystery. And it's, it's one of the... Um, uh, the, the, the great things about Sherlock Holmes, if you like a good mystery at the end, it doesn't leave you in, uh, in the dark. They, they tell you this is how it happened and, and this is what the criminal did, but this is how he got discovered. And it's just by that evidence that you find that. Peter here is giving us evidences of the hope that is within him, of the hope that is in with, within every Christian. And so I want to share in the next few minutes the evidences that we show of the hope that we have. The evidences that we show of the hope that we have. Notice if you're taking notes, first of all, that he talks about practical holiness leading us to practical love. Practical holiness leads us to practical love. I want you to notice that Peter begins with the practical holiness of obedience to God's word. He says there in verse 22, seeing that ye purified your souls in obeying the truth. The word purified is the same word as, as holy, right? In verse 15 and 16, it says, be ye holy. In verse uh, number 22, it says, being purified. It's the same word. Uh, and, it's, and it's talking about two different types of holiness. And that's, that's why they, they use two different words, at least in the King James translation. Maybe in other translations, they'll use the same word. But, but it's, a, it's a, different, um, a different use of the same word. The Bible talks about holiness, and he talks about two types of holiness. There is what we call positional holiness. Positional holiness is our standing before God. When we come to God as sinners, we confess our sins. We ask God to forgive us of our sins. We ask Jesus to be our Savior. In that moment, positionally before God, in our standing before God, we are holy. That means we are ready for heaven. That means heaven is our home. It means that the Holy Spirit of God now has come to indwell us and has made us holy. That is our standing before God. Positionally, you are as ready for heaven as you're ever going to be. Right? You, you, don't, you don't have to keep going to church to go to heaven if you've been made holy. 
Uh, you don't have to keep reading your Bible to get to heaven so that, because you've already been holy. You've been made holy. Uh, you don't have to get baptized so you can get to heaven. No, no. You've been made holy. We sang about the, the blood earlier. The blood that cleansed us is that blood that purifies us. In other words, in our standing before God, it has made us holy. But there's also what is known as practical holiness in the Bible. Now, practical holiness is living out who we are. It's our stating before God, our state before God. Positional is our standing before God. He sees us as holy people because he's made us holy. But practical holiness is, are we living in that holiness? Is, is showing forth that holiness, as I said, the evidence that we've been made holy. Peter says, you've been purified, you've been set apart, you've been distinct, you've been living holy in obeying the truth through the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God indwells us, and by the power of the Spirit of God, we can obey the truth. Now, we obeyed the truth when we heard the gospel. We obeyed the truth when we heard that the Bible says we are sinners and we are condemned because of our sin. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. And what Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus gives us life instead of death, but only through Jesus. It's not Jesus and the church. It's not Jesus and good works. It's only through Jesus. And when we've received Jesus as our personal Savior, we've been made holy. That positional holiness. We obeyed the truth there. But we are to continue obeying the truth. So we've obeyed the truth unto salvation positionally, but we ought to obey the truth continually in our life, in our practical holiness. It's living who we are. I heard someone give this example or illustration one time, and I loved it. He, he was talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. Do you know that for many years, well, I shouldn't say many, many years, but at least a year or two after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and the war was fought and then it was won by the Union, do you know that there were still many slaves living in slavery even after that? It took quite a few years to get the word around to the slaves to say, hey, you don't have to be a slave anymore. You don't have to continue staying on this farm. You have been liberated. You're free. You're a free man. You see, the emancipation positionally made them free. But many of them didn't get to live in that freedom till afterwards. So somebody literally got them out of the situation they were in. They, then they could live in their freedom. Suddenly, because of what the emancipation proclamation proclaimed them to be, now they could live uh, differently. They could live as free men in this country. That's what, it, that's what happens in the Christian life. We go from being declared holy to now living in that holiness. And there is an evidence of this, and the evidence of it is love. Now, that love is an unfeigned love. It's, it's to love without hypocrisies. Practical holiness leads to practical love. The love that he's talking about in practice is an unfeigned love for the brethren. 
Now there, for the brethren, he's talking about those that have received Christ as their personal Savior. We are in the family of God. If you've ever come to church and you hear people say, hey, brother so-and-so, hey, sister so-and-so, they, we call each other brother and sister even though we're not related by blood because we are in the same family of God. For as many as received him, that is Christ, to them gave he power to become sons of God. We're we in the same family. And so that's why we start saying, hey, brother so-and-so, hey, sister so-and-so, because we're, we're, we're in the same family. That's, that's what he's talking about, the brethren. And he's saying we ought to love the brethren, love other Christians with unfeigned love. Now, the word unfeigned here is the Greek word anipokritos. Now, anipokritos literally means without hypocrisy. The love that Christians are to show and give to other Christians ought to be genuine and real. In other words, it ought to be sincere. Not ought to be a masked love, but one without a mask. Uh, one that is without any kind of hypocrisy. You know, too many times today, Christians in the church are loving their fellow member, members with insincere love. We're not loving with unfeigned love. We're loving with politeness and properness, but no real desire to get to know one another. No real desire to really love with that unfeigned love, with a love that is without hypocrisy. You see, Jesus talks about this unfeigned love and how important it is. He told his disciples this in John 13, said in your notes, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So the unfeigned love is that love between family, that love without hypocrisy, that love of the brethren. He says, we've been purified in obeying the truth through the spirit with this unfeigned love for our brethren. So because that has happened, because hope has given us that position of being cleansed and purified and obeying the truth, we have this unfeigned love now for the brethren. We've been in a new family, a holy family. Then notice what he says, because here's the command. The command is, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, while he talks about unfeigned love, the, love, the word for love there is phileo, where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. When he says, see that you love one another, he uses a different Greek word, agapeo. And that is a godly love, a selfless love. He said, okay, we ought to love one another because we're in the same family, have that brotherly love. But the way that you display that brotherly love is with a agapeo love, a God-centered love, with a selfless love. In other words, we ought to love deeply and intently. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter stresses here that love to be pure and fervent. Now, the word pure is the Greek word katharos, which means clean, right? With a clean love, a pure love. But, but the context here gives it a better understanding. 
Katharos literally would be clean, but how you use it in a sentence makes a difference. The, the way you're using it, is it a verb, a noun, or, or an adverb? How you're using it uh, really makes a difference. And the way it's used here, that Peter's using it in this sentence, the context, it means without ulterior motives. We're to love one another without ulterior motives. Do you know that we live in a world that does have love, but it has love with ulterior motives many times, right? It's like, my job loves me until you're no longer useful to that company, right? And my, my school loves me until you embarrass them somehow. Or my friend loves me until I let him down. Ulterior motives. Loving someone because see what they can give me. See what I can get out of this relationship. A lot of the love in this world is see what I can get out of this relationship. Peter says, listen, in the church, that ought not to be the kind of love that we display. Now, Peter's talking directly in the context of us as a church, church members, loving Christians, loving Christians. But let me tell you something. As Christians, we know that that love applies to everyone. We ought to love the world that way. But you know what I have found? I found that sometimes in my Christian life, it's been easier to love someone that doesn't go to church than the ones that are at church, right? So many times we can be so understanding and so forgiving and we say, well, they don't go to church. They don't know any better. And man, we're going to give them another shot. We're going we're to work with them. But people at church, you're like, ah, he did it on purpose. I'm going to pray that God strike him with lightning. We have, we have less patience. That's why Peter knows this. Peter's been working in church. He's been working with people. He's been working with Christians, and he knows. And he's saying, look it, the hope that you have made you to put you in a new family, and you ought to love them pure, without ulterior motives. That, that, that talks about the depth of love, the depth, a pure heart. But then he adds the word, fervently. The word fervently is ektenos, and it means intensely. We should be loving one another with an intensity that does not portray passiveness or a careless attitude. Sometimes as Christians, our love can be that way. Someone's sharing with us a burden that they have, and we kind of dismiss it like, okay, yeah, listen, I, I, I got to go. We may not say it to them like that in their face, but we also don't intently listen. We also don't intensely love. And Peter says, if you're going to love, love deeply and intently. Have a, a deep passion for others. Not just carelessness. We see the Apostle Paul had this when he was writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, writing to a church of fellow believers, and he writes this, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all 
his sayings. Paul was simply saying the same thing in different words. Love one another. Practical holiness, the hope that we have, leads us to practical love. We really are going to live holy because he is holy. Well, then we ought to love. Because that's an evidence that holiness is working in us. That we're understanding who we are. Let me give you a second evidence quickly, and that is our new nature reproduces. Verse 22, we see practical holiness leading to practical love. In verse 23, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, there's this new truth that Peter kind of connects with our living holy, and that is what makes it possible for us to actually love others the way we ought to, and that is our new nature. Paul says, yeah, you ought to love one another, but what makes that possible isn't the power of positive thinking, but rather the seed that was planted in you. The incorruptible seed that God gave you in that moment when you received him. You'll notice that in the Christian life, there's a lot of receiving and giving. Now, Paul in the book of Acts told people, Jesus used to teach, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's why anytime you give, there's a, there's a feeling of joy. Even, even if you don't go to church, even if you're, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, there's a certain joy that people have. They, many of them give to charities because there's, there's something that's missing in their life and they feel like giving well, will do something for them. And, and usually it does. It gives them, there's an emotion about giving of ourselves to others that, that there is more joy in that. But you see, you can only give what you have received. If I I want to give somebody $100 and I want to write a check to them, there better be $100 in my account because if not, I really can't give them $100. I can give them a check that's just going to bounce. In the Christian life, what we give is a result of what we have received. And so here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, you've been put into a new family. You've received this holiness And this holiness ought to lead you to love others. And the way you can love others is because of the incorruptible seed you've been given, the new nature. In other words, we've received new life. New life. You see, when we were born, we were born with corruptible seed. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it's not in your notes, but the Bible says, death passed unto all men. Because of Adam's sin... Death was passed on to us. And in Psalm 51, it says that we're born in iniquity. We're born in sin. And I've said this many times, but that's why you don't have to teach little toddlers how to fight, how to hit one another, how to say mine. They do that all on their own. Our sinful nature does it all on its own. In fact, we have to do the opposite, right? We've got to teach them to share. We've got to teach them to get along with other people in the nursery, Right? That this world is not all about them. We have to teach that because our old nature that is corruptible thinks that life is all about me. And that corruption has bled into everything in our world. In Romans chapter 1, it said it affected creation. 
where animals now kill other animals. It wasn't always like that. God's beautiful, perfect creation now was marred by sin. And sin brought this corruption that ultimately ends in death. And Peter is just simply saying the hope that we have is because we've been born again. We've been given a new seed, an incorruptible seed. That seed lives and abides forever. That seed is the word of God. That means that God's word is life-giving and enduring. You you know why the Pharisees rejected Jesus? Because they rejected his word. Uh, Notice what he says in John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. He said, you're you're listening to the very words of God as I speak to you, and you don't want to listen. Because they've rejected the word. The one thing that can give them a new life and give them hope, They've rejected. Now, the wonderful news of why Peter is sharing this is because in the world of these Christians, everything was crashing down. They were suffering in trials. Many of them were being martyred. By the way, you don't have to read the Bible to know that. You can go back into your history books. And see what the Roman Empire was doing in the first, second, and third century. They're moderating. Not 20 and 30 of them. I mean thousands of them. Thousands of Christians for their faith. Paul's writing this to them so that they can understand. Listen, it might be that you might have to give your life. But what you're giving is something that's corruptible anyway. Something that was going to die, whether the Roman Empire takes your life or whether old age takes your life. Corruption is what is in us and it's going to kill us. But the hope we have is the incorruptible seed that will blossom after. That's why Paul in the first Corinthians talks about death and he says, then mortality will put on immortality. And the corruptible will put on incorruptibleness. It's that hope that we have. He was saying, look it, this world is fading. It's going to die. I always use the example with the teens because I know there there are a few of them that really like sports. And I always say, wouldn't it be awesome to win a Super Bowl? Yeah, and we think, man, we're going to live on that. I know people that give their life, their whole life to that game. There's nothing wrong with it. If God's given you the skills and you can get there, that's great. When that becomes your whole life, and that's all you want to do ever in your life, because you think that glory is going to last forever, give it 20 years and you'll find that it don't. You can ask most teenagers that are 18 years old who won the Super Bowl in 2001, and a majority of them, unless they're really into the sport, won't know. You ask the average person, they don't even care. And that's like a trivia Google question. 
The world we live in is corruptible. It fades. That's why Peter's writing, but the word that we've been given, the truth and the hope that we have, it's incorruptible. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 there in verse 24 and 25 to remind them of what the Bible is. It's, it's a glory that doesn't fade away. He says, flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass and grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. In the intense heat of this summer, we've seen that happen, right? Your grass has turned from green to probably brown at some point here. Your trees have died. Flowers have dropped their leaves. But the word of God, or the word of the Lord, endureth forever. Peter's point is just to say we can overcome because of the hope. John, the apostle, said it this way in 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We've been given a new life in this hope, which evidence is itself in reproducing, because then we share new life. We receive, then we give. We receive new life, then we give. Notice the last phrase of verse 25, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The gospel which we heard and responded to is the same gospel that gave us new life and is incorruptible. Now here's the thought I want you to take away from that. First, of course, we, we've been given this new life and it's amazing that the word of God gives us this incorruptible seed and this hope. And that's why it's important and that's why God has preserved it there's been so many men throughout the years that have tried to erase the Bible from this world and they've all died and faded away, but the Bible's still here. Hitler said he was and couldn't do it. Voltaire said he was, couldn't do it. Great men of power and wealth have tried to defeat the word of God and they can't. But what I want you to take away is the thought at the end that Peter says it was given to you. By whom? by other believers. I said our new nature reproduces because we receive and then we give. We receive this hope and then we share this hope. Ephesians 3.8 says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. You can see the humility of Paul in that, but he says, Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Paul didn't say, because I'm so holy and a, such a good Christian, I can share. He said, listen, I'm the least of saints. In Timothy, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. In other words, there's evidence in my life that I'm as bad as anybody else. Sharing the new life that we have isn't based on how good we live our life. It's based on how alive is that hope in us. See, when, when the hope is real, the evidence is there to see it. We really believe we've got new life, then we want to share that life. We don't have to get it down perfectly. In fact, many of us have probably shared with a coworker in jumbled words something about the Bible. 
You ever leave a conversation and go, what did I just say? I don't, even, I don't even know if I even made sense to myself about the Bible. I was telling them of something and I've walked away from conversations like that. It's funny because God uses those, those conversations sometimes more than the ones that we do make all the sense in the world in. I've had people come by and say, man, those words were great. Really? Because I didn't understand what I was talking about when I said that. We're just kind of saying that I really want you to come to church and that God can really change your life. And I'm not even sure I made a lot of sense even just saying those words, but God used them because that word is incorruptible. And when we have that new life in us and that hope, we want to share that hope. Peter says, that's the one you received because somebody gave it to you. Let me give you the last evidence because time has run out. Last evidence of hope is that we crave God's word. We see it in verse number two of chapter two. He says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. It's the only command there in the first three verses of chapter two. And I love the way chapter two starts. It starts with wherefore. Wherefore is because he's saying, I've said all this, wherefore, because, now then, all those are just connecting words. He said, now, because of that hope, we ought to crave God's word. How do we do that? By changing our attitude. He precedes the command by what needs to be done. He says, we ought to lay aside some things. That phrase, lay aside, it, it carries the idea of changing clothes. It's, it's the Greek phrase for change, change out of your clothes. That's why he says, we, we ought to lay it aside, change out of these clothes and put on new clothes. We ought to put on new attitude, attitudes that affect our love and our sharing. Now, I listed them in, uh, in your notes because I know it's going to, if I just run through them, uh, it, it's going to be too much to take in so you can read through them later. I'll just give you uh, what I put there in your notes. Malice, the harboring of evil thoughts against another person. He says, put that away in your life. You can find a lot of malice in churches. He says, put away guile. That is any form of dishonesty or trickery. Being dishonest with people, saying one thing, but not really going to do it. Or as we would say, just lying to people. Then he says, put away hypocrisies. This is insincerity or pretense, sham. Hypocrisies. The the hypocrite is a play actor pretending to be someone he is not. He says, put that out of your life. Then he says, putting away envies. That is barefaced jealousy. This is produced when seeing or hearing of the prosperity of others. Someone's doing well and you just can't stand that they're doing so well. You kind of feel like, why am I not doing as well as they are? I'm a, I'm a little bit better than they are. Then he says, evil speaking, that's backbiting and gossip and maliciousness, slander. He said, put that away. You know what stops me from really craving God's word? Those attitudes. 
You know what can discourage many people from reading their Bible? Reading other Christians. That's why Peter says, if you're going to crave, change your attitude. James, in his letter, he writes in chapter 1, verse 21, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Then notice, we crave the word by feasting on God's goodness. The only way to kill a craving is by eating. The only way to stop that baby from crying, <laughs> I'm very familiar with this. I have a like 21-year-old, 20, 21-month-old. Some of you that had 21-year-olds, you're like, yeah, they're, they're like that too. That doesn't go away. But it, it doesn't seem like too, too long ago that I was hearing that cry at 2 in the morning and then 3 in the morning and then 4 in the morning. And the only way to get that baby to calm down is by letting him eat. He says, desire, crave the sincere milk of the word. The word sincere means not deceitful. You can believe God's word because it is truth. It's not deceitful. You can trust it completely. You don't have to doubt any of it. Now, there's two thoughts here that I just want to give you real quick on this. Number one, many, many times Christians use this verse for new converts. It's, oh, you're, you're, you, you just got saved, so you ought to desire the milk of the word, and that's great. But Peter's not just writing to the new Christians, people who just got to church. He's writing to people that have been in church. As Christians, we ought to, we ought to long for it, crave. Listen, I can honestly say I crave more God's word today than I did 10 years ago. I can, I can sincerely say that. I'd put my, I can put my hand on the Bible and say before God, I love this word more today than I ever have in my life. I do. But the only way that has been possible is by feeding on God's graciousness. The other thought I wanted to give you is that babies don't eat just once a week. Listen, I love that we're here. Love that you're in church. I love that we're taking notes and we're, we're trying to grow spiritually. But if this is the only time you're in God's word, good night. No wonder you're, you're, not, you're not satisfying any craving in your life. You know what happens to a baby after craving milk and not getting it for a few days? They die. The craving they have is something that they need, that their body needs to stay alive. The craving that we have in our spiritual life keeps us vibrant and alive if we feed it constantly. Talking about newborn babes, I wish they only ate once a night. They don't. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. This morning we saw three evidences of our hope. One, practical holiness leads to practical love. So let me ask you, how's your love today? Are you showing love to others of God's family? And if you are, is it pure and fervent? 
that intense? Is it without ulterior motives? Number two, our new nature reproduces. Being incorruptible, it cannot be destroyed. But let me ask you, are you sharing it? Are you sharing that hope that you have? Or better yet, let me ask you, have you received that hope? Because that hope is only found in Christ. Number three, we crave God's word. We have to ask ourselves, what's stopping us from from craving more of God? Is it malice or jealousy or envy? Is it gossip? I don't know. I'll leave you with this last question. What are you feasting on this week? What are you feasting on? I want to encourage you today to show evidence of the hope. Ask God, God, this week, will you control my life enough that I show evidences of the hope that I have within me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the hope that we have within us. Oh, Father, I pray that as we meditate upon the truth of your word this morning, I pray that we would truly show evidences in our life of that hope. I pray that our church would be a place where love is seen and felt, where the intensity of our love cannot be denied, cannot be forgotten. I pray that you would work in us and reproduce with that incorruptible seed that has been planted in us, that fruit of that spirit. That joy, love, and peace, and salvation itself would would fill us, and that we would share that hope with others. The same truth that we receive that we would give. And then, Father, I pray that you would help us to crave your word help us to change any attitude that needs to be changed that's stopping us from loving others and from loving you. Anything that's stopping us from longing for your word. Help us to feed on your goodness and on your kindness and see that you're so good. Be with us, I pray, in the decisions that we make in our heart this morning. Help us to live it out this week. I ask this in Jesus' name.